Heavenly Father, um, I stand before the Word of God, uh, trembling, really, and very keenly aware of my inability to communicate the deep truths that are in this passage that we're going to look at today. So I ask that your hand would come, lay hold of me, your servant, and lay hold of your people. Help us see what you want us to see today, Father God. And would it create in us a desire to glorify you, like our brother Paul said, as Lord of everything. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So we have been uh, on a journey, if you've, if you've uh, been with us, through John 7. And the last few weeks, we see Jesus return to Jerusalem, and he's doing so in the Feast of Booths. His return is, is somewhat surprising, to be perfectly honest, because uh, Jerusalem is not a safe place to be, not for Jesus. Since John 5, the Jewish leadership has sought desperately to kill Jesus. They, they hate Jesus. They absolutely hate him, and they want him dead. And so to go to Jesus, uh, for, for Jesus to go to Jerusalem is to simply ask for trouble. And yet he does this. And as he's teaching in the, in the temple, the crowd is astonished and shocked at what he's saying. Jesus is saying things that don't simply echo what originally got him in trouble, which was that he said that God was his personal father. He's not simply doing that. He's going and saying all new things. Last week we saw in verse 19 of John 7 that he called the Jewish leaders lawbreakers and murderers because they were seeking to kill him. And then he told the crowd shockingly that they actually do not know God. They know of a creator God. They know from the scriptures that God was to send the Christ into the world. They knew some theological things, some religious things, but they didn't know the most important thing. They did not know savingly, personally, God himself. Let me read to you what Jesus said in John 7, 28. He says to them, you know me, Jesus of Nazareth, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. In him, you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So he's just told the crowd that he's teaching you don't know God. And this is where we left off at last week, uh, last week. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them. Turn with me to John 7, uh, verse 30. And what we're going to read here is what follows immediately after he tells them this. Verse 30 says, So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now the word so at the beginning of verse 30 is very important. John did not accidentally drop that in there. He is connecting what Jesus has told these people that they don't know God with the fact that they're now seeking to arrest him. I mean, they're actually mobilizing to do this. Jesus said that they didn't know his, know his, his father, 
and now they're, they're deploying, uh, well, they're gonna do this later, but they're seeking to arrest him. Now, the reason why this should not be surprising to us that he's in this position is from the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, this has always been true of him. He has always never shied away from saying hard things to people. And we were reminded of this uh, by Jesus at the very beginning of this chapter. If you recall, Jesus was having a conversation with his biological siblings, his brothers. And uh, at the very beginning, they told him, listen, you need to go into Jerusalem and you need to go into this feast that they're doing in Jerusalem and you need to show your signs so that you can become famous. That's what you need to do. And Jesus tells them, that's not gonna happen. If I go into Jerusalem, that's not gonna happen. And here's the reason why. He says in verse six of John seven, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, he says to his brothers, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. Now, we're not going to unpack this again. We did this uh, a few weeks ago, but I want to notice two specific things. The first one is this. The world hates Jesus because he testifies about it that its works are evil. I mean, even in this chapter alone, if we just use this chapter as criteria, he's called them lawbreakers, he's called them murderers, and he said that they do not know God. That is an indictment. Jesus, if we get anything from the picture that John paints, he is not afraid to tell the truth. He does not hide from the truth in order to gain the approval of people. He does not hide from the truth to remove a target from his back. He could do either of those. He doesn't do that here. So when he goes to the feast, it's no surprise to us. He's testifying that their works are evil. This is the intent of their heart to kill him. Secondly, Jesus tells us something twice here in, in verse six that we've already seen, that his time has not yet fully come, which is why John, when we get to verse 30 of this same chapter, says that they weren't able to arrest him. They tried to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And as we think about this hour here, it's, it's gonna come into play later on. Uh, we've said that this hour, that this time is actually referring to the death of Jesus on the cross where he would be lifted up for the world to see. He would go to the cross, we said last week and the week before, in the pursuit of his father's glory in order to die for people, in order to redeem them from their sin. That's the hour that he's speaking of. So whether by the decision of Christ to go to this feast differently than we would, if we have been in that position, or whether by simply the sovereign hand of God, no one, can lay a hand on Jesus before the appointed time. It's not going to happen. Jesus tells us in John 10, this very thing. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. He says, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again this charge I have received from my father. In other words, Jesus is saying, I decide when I'm going to die. Nobody else does this for me. I'm the one in control of this. Therefore, despite all that he says here about them, all his 
testifying about their evil deeds and their desire to arrest him. No one lays a hand on him because his time has not yet come. And no one, oops, sorry, Todd. No one takes Jesus's life. We read here in uh, verse 31 that despite the indignation that's being expressed towards Jesus, many of the people in Jerusalem actually believed in him. They believed. Uh, they say, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man? And, and I think what John's doing here is he is underscoring the reality that, number one, no one in Jerusalem was confused about Jesus's ability to do signs and miracles. There wasn't a drop of confusion. We live here 2000 years later and people question whether or not Jesus could do miracles. Nobody had those questions back then. They saw them happen. And whether you were an enemy or an ally of Jesus, you could not dispute it. And this is why they make this claim. The second reason John does this is the signs were so abundant that some people had to walk away and say, this guy must be the Christ. There's no way he could not be. They were, they were so frequent that, that they couldn't conceive of a man coming in the future down the road and doing more signs than Jesus. It just didn't make any sense. It wasn't possible. Now, what John doesn't tell us is whether their believing was genuine, sincere faith, real faith in Jesus, or whether it was superficial. We've seen superficial faith throughout this book. We've seen people who come to Jesus because he's a miracle worker, or they see him as a messianic king, and they just want him to topple Rome. That's not what true faith looks like. Either way, John's point here is not necessarily whether it was true or false faith. His point right here is that John's showing us that Jesus's signs were so profoundly clear that no one could decide, deny that they happened. No one could. It would be absolutely absurd to say he's not doing these miracles. And yet we know that people here are still rejecting him. Although many believe, many still do not. They see the same signs, they see the same miracles, and they outright reject Jesus. In fact, these very statements, this statement about the Christ doing more signs than Christ than Jesus is what ultimately solidifies the leaders in Jerusalem, their resolve to kill Jesus. Look at verse 32. It says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, namely how many signs he was doing and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So we see here a glimpse at who some of these Jewish uh, leaders are, the Pharisees and the chief priests. They hear the crowd muttering about Jesus and his signs, and they dispatch officers, temple police, to arrest him, which is a surprise to no one at all after what Jesus has said. These officers here really represent the security of the temple precinct. And what becomes clear by the end of this chapter, God willing, we'll get there next week, is that they were not sent to retrieve Jesus simply to ask him some questions or to have a hearing. That's not at all what they wanted to do. They were there, they were sending officers there to bring him in so that he could be executed. That was their purpose. And this fact is made evident at the end of the chapter when Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees who went to Jesus earlier and talked to him in John 3, if you recall, 
he suggests, hey, should we give him a hearing? Let's just give him a hearing and hear what he's doing. Find out whether or not this is real. And they ridicule him and deny him and say, no way, no way. We're not gonna just listen to this man talk. He needs to go. So make no mistake about this. They are still gunning for Jesus. They want him dead and arresting Christ is step one in the process to killing this man. And this act is in direct response to Jesus and his comments about uh, them not knowing God. Now, how would Jesus respond to this? Officers have been dispatched. They want to arrest him. This is what Jesus says in verse 33. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So this is Jesus's response to the Pharisees and the chief priests sending officers to arrest him. And at first blush, I mean, you've been in John for, we've been in John for several years now. At first blush, this feels like a strange response. But we're used to strange responses from Jesus. And we always discover that the strangeness of Jesus's statements have more to do with how we're not thinking properly. And he is. He is always speaking far deeper than anyone's thinking. He's not just engaging people. He's not just engaging events on the surface. He is plumbing the depths of eternal realities. Every statement, you can't get around them. He's saying something more than just that. And so what is he getting at here? What is he talking about? Well, he is talking about his departure. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. That's what he means when he says he's going to return to the one who sent him. He's going to return to God. He's going to return to his father. He's talking about this, this approaching hour that John has resurfaced several times. I mean, twice, three times just in this very chapter. Last week, this is what makes this fascinating. Last week, if you recall, he was talking about where he'd come from. We mentioned that earlier. You know where I come from. And then he described God who they don't know. So in fact, they actually do not know where he truly comes from. They only know where he was born in or where he, where he lived in Nazareth. And so last, last, last week when we looked at it, we he talked about where he came from and now he's talking about where he's going. Now think about that. It's almost as though he has gathered up the entire incarnation, his earthly ministry, the earthly ministry of the eternal word, God the Son, who became flesh and dwelt among us. And he's doing this right in the middle of the Feast of Booths. He's pointing to the beginning of his dwelling with us, where I come from. And he's pointing to the end of his dwelling with us, where I'm going. And he's doing that in this feast. Now, what makes that amazing is that this Feast of Booths is um, not just unrelated to this, it's, it's actually intimately and, and, and deeply related to his dwelling because the word booth in Greek is the word dwell. And we saw that in John 1:14, the same word that is used to describe the feast of booth is the same word that John uses when he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is not an accident for him to talk about where he came from and where he's going. 
he, he is engaging the, the divine parentheses of his time dwelling among humanity. Grabbing both ends, where I came from and where I'm headed. And that's what he's teaching about here. What makes this even more interesting is that, think about his intent here. They are looking to arrest him. They want to arrest him so that they can kill him. And he's saying, I'm not gonna be here much longer. I'm gonna go to my father. That's where I'm going. And what they don't know is that he's actually referring to his death, the very thing that they're seeking in this moment. They want him dead. And it's his death that will ultimately take him back to his father. But like everything that Jesus says to these men, they are blind to it. Their ignorance has numbed them to the the heart-rending reality of what Jesus is saying here. Think about what he's saying here. He's saying, I'm going home. I'm going home to the one who sent me. And my, my home is a place that you're not welcome. You cannot come. I mean, look, look at the words he uses. He says, you will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. In other words, because you have set yourself in opposition to me, this world is as close as you'll ever get to heaven. That is heartbreaking. And it's the truth. It's the truth about these men. He says effectively the same thing in John 8, 21. To the same crowd, I am going away. You will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus is saying to these men who have made him their enemy, you are not welcome in heaven. You can't come. He's saying that their violent unbelief toward him, the one that God has sent is an assault on God himself. That's what's going on here. And therefore they will die in their sin. And if they don't repent and they do die in their sin, they will spend all of eternity separated from God. And in their blind hatred toward Jesus, they don't get it. They don't get what he's saying. They refuse here outright to see the eternal peril of turning away from Jesus and not accepting the grace that he's offering. And they think here, if you look at verse 35, that Jesus is just talking about leaving the country. Look at this, verse 35. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. So they assume, because they can't really put together who he is, they assume that he's talking about the dispersion, the Jewish diaspora that is spread out across the Greek speaking world. They think that he, is, he, he must want to teach Greeks because in their minds, he'll never be the Jewish Messiah. You're not gonna be the Jewish Messiah. In fact, they plan to make sure that he's never the Jewish Messiah by killing him, which is ironically the very thing that will complete his work as the true Messiah. This is how Jesus is going to return to his father. He's going to return to his father because they are desperately trying to kill him. And it's with this scene 
where Jesus leaves them with the fact that he is going to his father, that John takes us to the final day of the feast. Look at verse 37. He calls it the great day. He says, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now this passage is, is far too massive and deep for us to really do it justice today. So God willing, we will pick it up next week. But um, what I do wanna do is engage a few dimensions of this as they pertain to what Jesus said earlier. Jesus told them that he's going to leave. He's going away to his father. He's going back to the one who sent him. And this departure isn't simply leaving the country. He's going to leave the world. He's going to die. In other words, he is talking here, even though they don't see this, about his death and his resurrection and his exaltation, not as some meager earthly king, his exaltation to the place he was before at his father's side in the heavens. And so here at the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus with these realities in his heart and his mind cries out, if anyone thirsts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, if you remember or recall our time in John, you know that this is not, uh, this is not something he, 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 he's never said before. John 6, for example, in Capernaum, after doing the miracle with the, feeding the 5,000, he says some, something that's very similar. He says in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst, thirst. So this is not new. And this idea of coming to him and drinking of him or eating of him is this reality we call faith. It is believing in Christ. To come to Jesus is to trust him. To come to Jesus is to receive him and believe. That's what drinking of him is. It's not just believing, as Brother Paul said, it's, it's not just believing him as a miracle worker. It's not just accepting him as someone who can get you out of a jam or someone who can conquer the Roman Empire. That's not all that is in this word to drink from him. It is receiving Jesus. True faith is receiving Jesus as the true food and the true drink from heaven. And when he says this, he says that it, or John tells us that it is linked to the Holy Spirit. Now we're gonna look at that some next week, God willing, but notice how John frames the giving of the Holy Spirit. He says here, as yet the Spirit had not been given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now think about this. This is exactly what Jesus has been talking about. He's been talking about going back to the one who sent him. He's been talking about his approaching hour, the time that was coming for him. And John 12, we looked at last week and the week before, if you recall, on his way to the cross, hours before his own death, Jesus refers to his death as glorification. John 12, 23. 
the hour has come, he says, for the son of man to be glorified. And he's talking about the cross. This is what needs to happen in order for that living, the water that he talks about in John 7 to come to us, the spirit. And he's not just talking about dying on a tree outside of Jerusalem. Jesus, when he refers to his glorification, because anybody can do that. Anybody can, can, can be crucified. But when Jesus is going to be crucified, he will be glorified because of what he does in and through the cross, what he secures, what he accomplishes through his dying. Hebrews 2 puts it like this. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. That's why he was crowned. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, God, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It's talking about the glorification of Jesus. And it only comes through his obedience, the obedience of Jesus going to the cross. That's what crowns him with glory and honor, according to Hebrews 2. This was why he was raised from the dead. He took the sins of many, brought them to the tree and paid for them with his own life. This is why he was exalted to the right hand of his father. In order for Jesus to go to the one who sent him, in order for Jesus to go home to his father, he had to go through the cross. Hebrews 1.3 says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He was glorified for dying for us. In this scene where Jesus is talking about giving water, in this scene, reflecting on the same glory that on the last day of the feast, Jesus here is, is pleading with the crowd to believe in him. As he considers this future glory, he is inviting people into it. And he says, if anyone thirst, that's his plea. And it should bring back memories of the woman at the well in Samaria. You remember this from John 4, the, the, the woman who, who he comes to the well, he's thirsty, he asks her for water. And, and she says, uh, she's surprised about it. And then he tells her, I have living water for you. I have living water. You should be asking me for water. And he says to her in John 4, everyone who drinks of, of this water, the physical water in this well, will be thirsty again. They're gonna get thirsty again but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Sounds an awful lot like John 7. Jesus is engaging the very same reality. So the key, uh, he, and he, and he, and really he's, he's, he's focusing on this, that, the key to receiving eternal life isn't simply having a set of ideas or even beliefs or propositions that you intellectually agree with. That's not the key to eternal reality, according to Jesus here. The, the key isn't even being con convinced about signs and miracles. Everyone saw the signs and miracles. Many people were convinced, but that wasn't eternal life. 
many people in Judea had enough evidence to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. But that's not what Jesus is addressing here in the last day of the feast. There was a landslide of evidence pointing to him as the Christ and he could have presented droves more. That isn't the main issue. The main issue is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty for me? That's the issue. Do you realize, Jesus is saying by inviting them to drink from him, do you realize that your soul is a dry, barren wasteland and that I'm the only one that can fix it? I'm the only thing that you can drink that will fix that wasteland. That's the main issue. People who come to Jesus for anything other than that, this kind of echoes what Brother Paul Kim said earlier, people who come to Jesus for anything other than that will wind up leaving him one day. They'll, they'll leave him one day. Um, because John 7, not only tells us this is a reason, but he's holding out, this is the essence of eternal life. To drink of this living water is the essence of eternal life. It's not health. It's not wealth. It's not freedom from sorrow or pain. Jesus does not promise freedom from any of those things in this life. In fact, he tells them in this world, you will have troubles. You will have difficulty. Paul says in Acts, it's through many tribulations that we must enter into the kingdom. First Timothy, share in the suffering by the power of God. Suffering is a reality of the Christian life. Jesus does not promise us a free pass out of that. He promises us living water, something that is infinitely more valuable. He's saying here, I am alone. I alone am sufficient to satisfy the greatest need of your soul. That's what Jesus is crying out here on the last day of the feast as he prepares to depart to the one who sent him. And we really need to press on this a bit because I think as Christians, and maybe this is just an American thing, maybe it's not. As Christians, we tend to be preoccupied with the incarnation, which is a glorious thing. I mean, especially around Christmas, we're thinking about God became man. That's, a, that's an amazing reality. We, we, we tend to be very fixated on that, but we don't typically think about or ponder what it was like for Christ to enter the presence of his father. Think about it. He's returning to the one who sent him. The exaltation of Christ, the ascension into the presence of the Holy of Holies, his own father. This wasn't just like a vision like we see in the Old Testament. This wasn't a theophany where there's some sort of glimpse of God's throne room. Christ entered the presence of his father as a human being. Think about that. That had never happened like that before. No one had ever been in his presence like that. So, so it, the incarnation is this, is this penetration of the physical world, created physical reality by the divine son of God. Then his exaltation is the penetration of the divine reality, God himself in his presence with flesh and blood. It had never happened before. Think about this, the Lord of the universe the Lord of the universe is a human being with a pulse and a heart. He had an umbilical cord. He cried when he was a baby. 
and he rules every molecule perfectly. This is an amazing mystery. Hebrews 9 tells us that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He continues in Hebrews 10 by saying that Christ had offered, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, I'm going back to my dad. I'm going home. And he tells the Jewish leaders, where I go, you can't come. You will look for me and you will not find me, nor will you ever desire to find me because you don't know how thirsty you really are. But praise be to God, that response is not true about everyone. Some hear the voice of Christ through the scriptures or when he was preaching on the earth and the spirit comes and opens the eyes of their hearts to say, you know what? I think I really am thirsty. I think I am eternally thirsty and nothing in this world has satisfied me. Everything I drink in this world is like a barren, broken cistern. And I think I do need you. I think you're the thing that I've been looking for my whole life. And when we come to him and we trust him and receive him as the living water he is, we are are joined to Christ and everything that he accomplished. Now let that reality hit you. When Christ goes back to his father, he goes back to his father with us, those who believed in him in his arms. When Christ was raised from the dead, he wasn't raised from the dead on his, uh, alone. Everyone who's, who's drunk from or drank from Christ was raised with him. Whoever was, whoever's trusted in Christ, and we looked at this when we looked at baptism recently, has been raised with them. So in some inexpressibly mysterious way, we too were brought into the heavens with Christ. If you believe in Christ right now, then in some way more real than I can even describe with words, earthly language, we are with him in the heavens. We are joined to him. We are in him. Colossians 2 says, we are, or 3 says, we are hidden with Christ in God. Listen to how Paul describes this. And, I, and I'm not talking about a future event. I'll mention that in just a second. I'm talking about right now. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 2. He says that God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, he says. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you have come to believe in Jesus, if you've come to drink from this fountain of living water, if that's true about you, and he's quenched the needs of your soul, then right now, in some way that you can't see, I can't see, we can't even comprehend, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That's true. We are what he brought 
to his father after the cross. So what Jesus told the unbelieving crowds in Jerusalem is not what he tells you or me. If you believe in him, he has something else to say to us. When Christ entered into the heavens to to sit by his father's side in glory, he entered with you and me in his arms. And he said, as it says in Isaiah 8, behold, I and the children the the Lord has given me. These are mine. I bought them. I paid for them with my blood. That's what happened when the God-man entered into the heaven and sat down at the right hand of the, the throne of majesty on high. And this is exactly why Jesus is crying out on the last day of the feast, come. He's pleading with him, drink of living water. Drink of the immeasurable riches of God's grace and kindness to you. Drink from a well that will never run dry. And his invitation still stands. As, as a, a believers in, in you know, 2,000 years removed from this, there might be a question we would want to ask him if we were there, but you might say to me, Jeremy, that's a great picture, an amazing picture, and I see the text in Ephesians 2. I see it. I know it's real. But that doesn't feel like me right now. I do not feel like I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Right now, I feel like I am battered and broken by the world we live in, by a world ravaged by the pandemic that Brother Paul talked about earlier, by a world ravaged by confusion and animosity and hatred and civil unrest. I am in pain, Jeremy. I am in sorrow in my life. And some days, you might tell me, I don't know that I can make it. I don't know that I can make it. And this picture of being seated with Christ is very beautiful, but it feels very far from where I am right now. And if that's you, you need to know first, you're not alone. You're not alone. The scriptures are clear. In this life, we suffer. We will experience pain. We will experience loss. We will experience hardship. Every day of our lives, we will have to fight against the sin in us and the sin outside of us. And as real as, as, as the, the, the reality of Ephesians 2 might be, it does often feel extraordinarily far from where we are, which is why Jesus, on the night before heading to the cross, looked into the eyes of his disciples and said the following words. And I want you to hear them. If you're a believer, I want you to hear these words. They're spoken to you. This is why John wrote them down. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He said that to you. He said that to me. Right now, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. If you drink from the well of living water, if you believe in Christ and have received him as Savior, as Lord, as treasure, 
you are as good as home in the eyes of God. You are as good as home. But one day I promise with the very words that Jesus promised, he will come again and he will take you to himself so that you can be where he is. He will bring you home. And I don't just mean a place that feels like home. I mean your true home. Every other home you have is a pale shadow of what this is. This is the place you were always meant to be, prepared by the very nail-scarred hands of your Lord and Savior. And he will bring you there so that you can be with him forever. And it's because of this promise that Christ makes on the eve of his own death that we know in the eyes of God, we are with him. It's as good as done. It's complete. When he said it is finished, he meant it on the cross. And this is what he accomplished when he died. This is why he went back to his father. He went to guarantee and secure this reality. All who drink of Christ will know this glory one day. And so if you don't, and even if you do, let me invite you, drink. Drink freely from this well. He will never, ever, ever let you down. Let's pray. Father God, we've been blessed with so much today. As we continue in worship here and and in the Lord's Supper between the songs, Father, I just ask that you would, you would grant us in our hearts and minds a desire and a hunger to drink. That we would drink. That we would recognize that the barren cisterns, the barren wells of this world can never satisfy. They haven't yet and they won't tomorrow or the next day or the next day. We need something far greater. And so I I pray right now, Father God, that you would speak into our souls as we sing, as we worship, and as we finish our time here today. Communicate the realities of this text and draw us in to the desire we need to have for this living water, Father God. I I plead with you, Father, for the sake of your Son and your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.